Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I'm your host, joined as always by my co-host Andrew. How are you doing today, sir? Hello, hello. I am up in the middle, well, for me, what is the middle of the night? I work overnight and I sleep all day, so it's the middle of the day, but <laughs> I'm. Uh, it might as well be the middle of the night for me. But you're awake and alert and ready to talk some blue collar. Yes, I am. All right. So we are tackling a 1978 movie directed by Paul Schrader entitled Blue Collar. Paul Schrader at the time was best known as a screenwriter, probably best known for scripting Martin Scorsese's now classic Taxi Driver. That was the first of uh, several collaborations he would do with Scorsese. The movie Blue Collar marks his directorial debut. He penned the, the screenplay with his brother Leonard Schrader, who had some success himself as a solo screenwriter, but also collaborated with his brother Paul on four total scripts, this being the second of, the, of their four. The movie was produced by Don Guest. The cinematography was done by Bobby Byrne. The film was edited by Tom Rolfe. The music was done by Jack Nitschke. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And he collaborated on the track Hard Working Man as a collaboration with Captain Beefheart. Captain Beefheart, best known probably for his work with Frank Zappa. Uh, the song Hard Working Man opens up the opens up the movie and also is played a couple times throughout. The film had a budget of $1.7 million dollars. And grossed a total of $6.5 million. It was very well received by critics. The film was shot over the course of 35 days in Kalamazoo and Detroit, Michigan. The film stars Richard Pryor as Zeke Brown. Harvey Keitel as Jerry Bartowski. Yafet Koto as John Smokey James. The three of which are our three leads, our three protagonists who are all working on an auto assembly line in Detroit, Michigan. The film also stars Cliff DeYoung as John Burroughs, a government agent that is investigating union corruption. It's a drama based on three men essentially looking for the um, American dream, and it's noted in the movie that if you don't have the money to buy the American dream, that you have to fight for it. As opposed to some movies like Taxi Driver, which is a character study of Travis Bickle, we are we're given three character studies, and we see these three men who start out the, the film as great friends and great co-workers, but ultimately, through their course of actions throughout the movie that involve robbing their own union, blackmail, corruption, racial tension, personal tension... We see their friendship uh, dissolve before our eyes. It's a very gritty, a very real movie. Anyone that's worked pretty much anywhere, even, you know, we've all had a blue-collar job. Well, the majority of us have had a blue-collar job at least once in our lifetimes, if not several times in our lifetimes, or continue to have them. So it's a very relatable film. It's a very real film. It is a drama. There is some comedy uh, throughout and it's just a great, it's great to see 
three actors deliver such incredible performances with three very unique personalities and how these personalities coexist at first and become adversarial towards the end of the movie. So let's travel back to 1978. Let's take a trip back to the Midwest, to Michigan, and let's spend some time with Zeke, Jerry, and Smokey. Andrew, your initial thoughts for Blue Collar. My initial, my initial thoughts are, are very positive. Uh, we've, just so the viewers know, we've talked to, Chris and I have talked about this movie already. We, we stumbled through a version of this of this episode um, and we're redoing it now. But the, I didn't know anything about this movie. It had, it, I, I remember it did play at my video store that I worked at in New York City in the 90s. Um, there was a day when the manager, uh, our manager on duty wanted to see some obscure films that uh, were good and he put that one on. So it was, it, the only thing I really remember is, is Smokey's Murder. But I do remember that uh, that it had, that it was well written. And then when I watched it again just recently and I had to, for, for several reasons, I had to watch a shitty free version on YouTube which, uh, chopped off the sides of, of the screen uh, and so I, I just I just gripped my teeth and did it but even even under those circumstances this movie resonated with me uh, on, a, on a on a pretty deep level uh, and I love this kind of filmmaking and this is filmmaking that is uh, not exclusive to but very much a part of the 70s where social social I guess I should say social commentary. I want to use a better term than that. Uh, social investigation. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you. Was was uh, becoming the norm in Hollywood for films, and this this movie is no exception. It really packs a punch. It packs a wallop, and it's real. And so here here we are. We're watching a movie that is not only a slice of life and not only going out of its way to be kind of gritty, but also very real problems, very real issues uh, going on. Uh, just off the top of my head, I want to say that uh, I did see on IMDb that Paul Schrader had gone to his home state of Michigan and went to Detroit and interviewed auto workers, and they told him that, uh, yeah, management sucks, but that their own their own union was even worse. They, I think, they said it fucks us every time. Uh, so, henceforth, Schrader took that ball and ran with it. And I think he, because he said he had never seen anything tackled like that in the movie before. Well, um, so, yeah. Which is true. I, I, I mean, from the time this movie was written and made before I was even alive, it's still. It, I mean, as someone that you know, I don't want to toot my own arm. I am college educated and I, I have worked a variety of different jobs but I know I've worked customer service I've worked with the public I've never worked with a union but my only familiarity with 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 union talk has kind of been through the news through media you know stories about Jimmy Hoffa and uh, union corruption I do know the positives 
of the unions because my grandfather was a a union worker for the railroads. But I also have, wow. yeah. So, so I, I I do know that he was able to provide. But I I suppose, and this goes to the, to the heart of the movie. It kind of depends on the union itself, and it's pointed out very early by Cliff D. Young's character. He says that your union is the most corrupt in the state, but there's also scenes where the white union rep talks talks to Richard Pryor's character and talks about how he stood on the picket lines. It was people like him, and unfortunately, I mean, the depiction of of the the higher ups in the union are older white men who have achieved a status in this union and and who and who are very almost almost blatantly cogs in a very corrupt wheel it, they are but going back to my grandfather i know that he was pe- able to provide a life for my mother and her sisters and his wife because of union work but this is that was a railroad union. It was, you know, it's very different. I just remember that, you know, my parents are originally from New Jersey. I currently reside in Rhode Island. I was born and raised in Rhode Island. But every time that my grandparents would come to visit, they always got the they would always take the train. And it was because of the union. They always rode for free, uh, you know, because of the service that my grandfather had given. So this movie it it walks a fine line about criticizing the union but it also shows the positives like we we see the man talk to um to Zeke and says that you know it was people like him that got african americans you know black americans to be able to be involved in the union but yeah but yeah, go ahead go ahead go ahead but it's also there's a very predatory nature of these unions would you you know, do you know what I'm saying? They have, Absolutely. and this goes back to something that you had brought up when we previously started recording this episode that I completely forgot. One of the most, so we spend, and it's about an hour into the movie, so we spend the, an hour with these three, our three leads. Zeke and Smokey are both black Americans. Zeke is a not well-educated character who basically has been working his entire life. He's a family man. He's married. He has three kids. Smokey, it's it's hinted at. Well, it's not hinted at. It he does have some um some legal troubles back in his past and he's familiar with illegal activity with crime. So, he's also our um and then we have uh Harvey Keitel's character Jerry uh the white Polish working man who, who you know who has two jobs to barely scrape by to provide for his family and so we're given these three very distinct personalities and then they're ultimately pushed to the point where they're all frustrated with their, where they are in life for various reasons they all have personal reasons um Zeke gets busted by the IRS and he owes back taxes Harvey Keitel's character, Jerry, is dealing with personal issues, significantly kind of just scraping by and not being able to v- provide his daughter with uh, braces that she needs to the point where she tries to make her own braces and, you know, cuts up her teeth and gums. And 
Smokey is their kind of um is kind of their 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 fun like wingman, you know. Um, they talk about how they wouldn't have any fun if Smokey wasn't around. And so they get to the point where you know, it briefly becomes a heist movie for about five minutes. They they try to rob their own union. You know, there's some hijinks, some shenanigans. A guard gets knocked out. We're, we're given some comedic relief with their their silly costumes, but then we're given um. When they decide to blackmail the the union, one of the most telling scenes is we hear these two higher ups in the union kind of break down their characters, and they all have they have files on these people, and it kind of talks, it kind of speaks to um, I mean this is the seventies before we had you know you know the internet and all these cell phones and everything. You could just imagine. So the, the the type of information that they have about all these people broken down into files, it's it's kind of unnerving, you know, thinking back to, to the time, the, the amount of effort and research that must have been put in to this kind of research that they they were they they did about surveillance, basically surveillance. I mean, it's 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 people who you don't even know who know more about you than. Uh, they should. Right. And it's unnerving. You know, we see these three characters that we, we, we grow to like over the course of the movie. And then it's yeah. they're all. Let me, let me, yeah. Let, let me explain for the viewer what Chris is talking about. There is a scene where. Uh, OK, so so our three are three, three buddies. Um, when, they, when they break open the safe, they don't find any when they just when they decide to rob their union, they break open the safe. They don't find any money. What they find is actually a ledger, a notebook, that shows uh, how the union, I think, has been giving loans out with tremendous interest and profiting greatly on this interest, which is uh, corrupt and I think illegal, although that they argue that they debate that in the movie. But it's it's definitely, it's definitely a... a, a, a it's... Uh, it's very damning, this ledger. And they've got they've got they've got something in their hands now that they can use to blackmail the union, which is what they decide to do, uh, or attempt to do. Um, so so as they're doing this, the the we don't even really know who it is. If it's the union representatives that we've been seeing in the movie, or if it's the uh, the higher ups in the auto auto factory that they're working in, but they are there. You see, a, you know, you see a hand going through paper files with pictures, with snapshots attached to them. And they do that for our three characters. And they're breaking down their character, you know, their characters talking to each other, saying, well, this one will cave easily if we push hard enough. Uh, this one, this one, this one will, will keep fucking us up even after we give him what he wants. Uh, and that's the one that they end up murdering. Um, you know, so it's this kind of, uh, this kind of evaluation that they that they give each character and they basically succeed um in dealing with these three individuals based on these evaluations that they that they have for these characters they end up they end up uh giving prior they, they end up giving zeke uh what he wants uh and shutting him up that way and they end up murdering Smokey, as i said and then they also um in tip they intimidate. I forget what they say about Jerry, but and eventually Jerry, Jerry becomes a pawn in their little chess game as well. 
Yeah, they result to in- intimidating uh, Jerry. They, you know, they send some some thugs to his house as a, you know. It's not insinuated exactly what these thugs were supposed to do. They were just supposed to show up at Jerry's house. Um, probably just, you know, kind of like a warning sign. They, it, it, and So, like, we have these three characters, and they're stripped of their names. They're stripped of their personality. They're basically traits of a person that, that these union people use to exploit and manipulate. Um. Yeah. Without a care for, you know... You know, there's a psychology behind it. It's like they know their psychology. They do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think I alluded to it. It's almost... It's, it's kind of reminiscent of, like, the mafia, kind of, in a way. You know that... What? I'm sorry? Of what? Reminiscent of what? Kind of the mafia, you know that the higher ups are always, oh, yeah. they're always, to, they're always talking about, they're always evaluating the people underneath them, and they, it's similar to the way the mafia kind of manipulates people. I I think that it's shown in mafia movies, but it was also greatly expanded in the the Sopranos series about how much like backroom talk there is about someone and I, I you made mention of it there's yeah. a there's a confrontation at at the plant with Smokey and one of the foremen and it's resolved but then you kind of alluded to that you know that the minute that Smokey left that office that you know the conversation was going to continue to talk about that and yeah. Right, their little their little makeup game uh, for what is it? Smokey is Zeke, right? When they bring Zeke into the office. Yes, Zeke. I'm sorry, not Smokey. Yeah, yeah. they bring Zeke into the office, and uh, you know they they end up patching things up between Zeke and the foreman. Uh, but as Zeke is leaving, yeah, there is at least in my mind there is the suspicion that they're going to keep talking about what to do with Zeke. Um, that that was just a little, you know. That was just a little performance that they gave in the office to appease him for the moment. But long term, will be a different story. Uh, now, now, who you know, who knows what their original plans might have been for Zeke? Maybe you know, maybe nothing. But eventually, he gets promoted. Uh, and that—that's because he played. That you know what? He gets promoted because he gives them the ledger, right? Yes. There's a scene, yes. The scene between him and Jerry towards the end, where Jerry's like, "You gave him the notebook, didn't you?" So that's that's Zeke's big sellout. Yeah. You know, I, Zeke Zeke's name is short for Ezekiel. I did. Um, I, I I don't know the Bible as well as maybe I should, but I did Wikipedia Ezekiel Ezekiel to find out kind of who he was, and he he prophesized the fall of Jerusalem. Um, really. So. Mm. <laughs> I thought that yeah, so I thought that was interesting that you know um, if you want to if you want to you know call his little factory that he's big factory that he's working in you know metaphorically a Jerusalem that ends up falling I don't know maybe that's a stretch no it's it, by the way also means uh, I was gonna right? say it's it's not a stretch um, so Paul 
I'm sure Paul and his brother, Paul Schrader and his brother, you know, had that in mind when they were writing the screenplay, maybe. They were raised strict Calvinists. They were, ve- yeah. they were very... So, this movie is interesting because a lot of Paul Schrader's screenplays ha- have religious themes and undertones in it. So, that's not a stretch at all. He's... Um, okay. He knows what he's talking about. He, he talks about in his past... He didn't see... He was... His parents were so strict that he did not see his first movie until he was 17 years old. And he... Oh, wow. So, he was a very... So, religion... Wow. And, and then... Yeah. And... It plays a part in what he does. Absolutely. A lot of his movies... The follow-up to Blue Collar is a movie called Hardcore, which is the story of a very uh, devout religious person that discovers that his daughter has run away from home and because of the religious oppression and repression that he instilled on her she her act of rebellion is running away to california and doing drugs and starring in pornographic movies and then there's the story of her, her father coming to to rescue her but religion what yeah whoa, whoa, whoa. this is what it this is ostensibly a sequel to Blue Collar? No, no, follow-up. I meant just like a, his follow-up movie. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's a, there's, there's, no, there's no link. There's, there's no similar characters or anything like that. No, I just met a, a follow-up. I, I, I'm mixing up follow-up with sequel. My yeah. Bad. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. So, no, that's not a stretch at all. The way that you, 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 you put it is that I think that we put we put certain figures up on pedestals and we we kind of strive some of us to take over that place to become that that figurehead and that's what happens with Zeke he becomes yeah. you know the whole movie up until the very end he's the one that's ragging on the foreman he's the one that's joking about the higher ups with the other workers until he's given that that cushy job yeah he does a total 180 and all you all you need to see is just him at the end of the movie that's all you see is that scene with him at the very end of the movie with Kaitel uh when he's gotten that promotion you don't see that promotion really in action uh up until that point nope and he, and he did, it's a total 180 it's a total 180 you're just like wow and, you know <laughs> wow because he's the most he's the most outspoken of the three he's the one that stands up at the union meeting at the very beginning and talks about like what bullshit it is that um his locker's been broken for six months and they want they want volunteers on their days off to be to be putting out pamphlets he's the most outspoken one and he's the one that makes that 180 he's been shredding He's been shredding his finger <laughs> for the past six months, opening his locker because there's no lock on it. So he has to put his finger inside and cut it up to open the locker. <laughs> now, what's what's up with that? I mean, could, can we draw any, like, phallic Freudian type of <laughs> parallels with this about just, like, because we... We did that, even though even though we never got a podcast for After Hours uh, released. We did talk about this type of thing in After Hours, where it's just like 
mutilating the penis. I'm just wondering if his finger <laughs> could be some sort of metaphor for just like <laughs> penis mutilation. You can edit this out if you want. No, because well, <laughs> but I mean, it's just it's such a you know that is how we start out with him in the union meeting, and he's just like my finger is torn up from having to open my locker with it, you know, for the past six months, and you won't fix it. I I I don't want to speculate on the the psychology, the mindset of Paul Schrader. I have noticed though. He has a very weird way of writing women in his movies. It's and I don't I it's it's interesting because there's hardly there's hardly any major female character in this movie. And the closest I can think of is Kaita, is Jerry's wife. Exactly. And his best known movie at this time was Taxi Driver, which the male dominated Exactly, and a lot of his movies, most he's he usually directs scripts that he writes. Blue Collar is one of them, but I think the only movie that I've seen him direct that has a lead female character uh, was the 1980s Cat People movie, and he didn't write that script. It's a very female-dominated um, picture, but he didn't write that script. So I'm, you know, again, I don't want to speculate on... The subconscious. I don't want to play Dr. Freud with Paul Schrader, sure. but sure. but knowing his background, knowing that you know very religious upbringing, you know not seeing movies until you were seventeen, and then almost like overcompensating for that in college, he became well, certainly in, certainly in terms of never being allowed to watch a movie until he was seventeen. All of a sudden, now not all of a sudden, but he, you know he was deep destined to become a movie director based on that it looks like right and about making you know compensating for lost time so yeah and like i said not only that but before he was a screenwriter he was a movie critic he he you know that's like the job he had before he started writing screenplays himself so he like it's almost like yes yeah so it's almost like like, he found his calling, but it was, like, so late in life that it clicked. And like I said, it's almost like an overcompensating thing. Is like he went from not being able to see movies to where his job is nothing but watching movies and, and writing about them and talking about them. And again, I don't want to speculate on the psychology, but I do think it's very interesting that if you look over the catalog of his movies, they're very male-dominated. The female characters are generally pretty... not submissive they're very passive they don't really have a lot to do other than i haven't seen everything that he's directed i mean american gigolo with richard gear is about you know an american gigolo like taxi driver is about a taxi driver paul schrader too yeah yep so paul <laughs> did paul schrader write the screenplay for american gigolo i believe so I'm I'm pretty sure. I I, I don't want to say That's interesting. I mean, to go from Taxi Driver to American Gigolo. Plus, uh, like I mentioned, the movie Hardcore that was you know <laughs> in between those two, and we can get into it. But like, I'll just mention this briefly, and 
Now, you know what? I'm going to save it. I, I think we should cover cat people at a different time. I, ha- I have a very interesting story about cat people, but let's let's stick with blue collar because we'll get completely off track. All right. Um, All right. All right. Uh, <clears throat> interaction. You know, I, I also want to mention, uh, and I wish I had rewatched the beginning and the end just to, just to get exactly what is said, but it's talking about the vision. And how the implication is that division uh, is the name of the game, and it makes people easier to control. Do you, I mean? Do you do you do you know what I'm talking about? Do you remember this? It's at the beginning and the end. Yeah, and I... by the end, it has made its point. By the end, it's made its point by dividing uh, our our main characters, who were inseparable, you know, before before they had to go their own ways. I mean, we're talking about guys that share. I mean, I guess it was the 70s. I wouldn't know. But, like, it's almost like a stereotypical 70s party. Uh, Zeke and Jerry sneak off. Uh, Smokey's, you know, he's not married. He doesn't have kids. So they all go to Smokey's apartment. There's cocaine. There's pot. There's booze. And women. And I was going to just, yeah. So we're talking about guys that share everything together. They share women. And there's even a joke afterwards about, it's like a not. It's like a throw off joke about STDs. <laughs> Afterwards, after the party, he's like, "Do you have any, like, are you do you have any ill effects from the party?" He's like, "No, why?" He's like, oh, "I guess it's just like another case of penicillin for me or something, like some kind of joke." And he makes some, you know, he says, "All those girls were clean." Yeah. I vaguely, I don't know if I remember that 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 they're having a, a, a good old time definitely together they have that's a and there's a that's right they're actually they're actually it's, might as well be an orgy they're having sex right in front of each other so yeah the scene the scene where they're coming down from all of it the, the sun has risen and they're sitting around and they're coming off their drugs and they've you know shot their wads i guess and they're just talking and it's and once again we're getting very real here the the banter between all of them uh becomes very real it's funny when i was watching this on on that shitty free youtube version uh, it's i guess all three of them are on the couch together and they're talking the only one i could see was harvey Keitel. like he's the one in the middle i guess he's the cream in the oreos yeah he's the cream in the oreo sandwich <laughs> he's the cream in the oreo <laughs> they, they get called. That's right. They get called the Oreo yeah. gang by the papers after they do their robbery. Yeah, I just want to dis- I just want to disclose for people listening. That's that's not a, that's not us making a racist joke. That's that we're talking about actual oh, dialogue yes. for the. Okay, all right. That's actual dialogue for the movie. In college, in college the, I mean, college back in the eighties, like the, the black guys that Billy Porter, Billy Porter was one of my classmates in college and he would talk about we're gonna have oreos tonight talking about menage a trois with like a white guy okay the three of them are talking as they're coming down from their party and at one point richard Pryor's character zeke says man sometimes i just get real depressed and I don't know why. I mean, that is such a simple statement, but I don't know why that resonated with me so much. Because probably because you don't really hear that in movies. If you hear that now, it 
usually in conjunction to taking medication on a television commercial or something. But just to hear uh, a character in the movie just being, just saying it, like I get real depressed and starting to talk about why. It reminds me of Tina, <laughs> of all comparisons, it reminds me of Tina Louise's scene in Stepford Wives. I don't think you've seen the original Stepford Wives. We'll cover it at some point on, on our podcast. But it's uh, uh, Catherine, Catherine Ross and Paula Prentice are uh, trying to get to know the women in, in the town, and they go and they visit Tina Louise, and um, she starts opening up. She oh, they have a they have a they have a get together with all the wives in the in the neighborhood, and all the wives can do is talk about you know cleaning products. But Tina Louise actually starts opening up about her marital problems, and. I appreciate this so much in movies when characters do this. Um, maybe because I feel like I don't see it enough in my own life, except with my very good friends. Well, um, you know, so so it's just a moment in Blue Collar that establishes it as a very human film, especially with those three characters. And I think that reason that that scene resonates so well is because you get the feeling that up until this point. You know, they, they complain about their union. They they complain about it's it's kind of like but they kind of put up a macho front. And it seems that like this coming down scene, it's just them like exposed and so raw. And they yeah. you believe that their friendship and relationship is so close that you actually believe that these three would actually feel like because they are like they are kind of like macho, macho man. You believe that they could actually be this real, this open, this honest, this raw with only each other. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very good point. And that and therein lies the crux of the, the, the heart of this movie. And so Yeah. And so when they have realized that they've gone that they're in over their head with this blackmail deal that they're that they're doing with the union and they say to each other i think it's smoky because smoky knows crime better than the other two and he says you know what uh the word is out about us even though they haven't busted us the word is out like it's in the papers we can't even be seen together anymore people you know now people know about three guys two black and one white who uh, did this? Did this? You know, this robbery that is now becoming whatever it's becoming now. But anyway, he's just like we can't even be we can't even be seen together anymore. We got to go our separate ways. Ooh, and it's just not you know. And all three of them feel the pain of that, uh, and we do too. Yeah, we do too as the viewer, because like what, what? you grow. Pryor's acting is excellent in this movie. I think across the board. I can't believe we'll talk later about his antics uh, behind the cameras, but I mean, despite the fact, despite all of that, um, his performance is excellent. And in that particular scene, you really feel him being like, "What? This is what? No, I can't. I've lost my friends. I've lost you guys now. What?" It, it, you don't spend that much time with these characters together because the the movie's you know it it's it's over two hours long, but it doesn't. But we had these like. Yeah, it's uh, I think it's like 140 minutes. 
But like we we get the little scenes, we get the party scene, we get to see them relate. We see lots of scenes of them just shooting the shit after work, drinking beers, complaining. We get the scene with um Zeke and Jerry taking their respective wives out bowling with the kids. Yep. You get these little like you get these little slices of life that make up the food analogy. It makes up like it's like a a little slice of pizza that makes up the entire pizza pie of the their relationship. And then these pieces are like ripped apart. We see the pieces, we see it's like you see the puzzle coming together, but then the movie says, "Well, this these are like the actual ramifications of of their actions." And you see the the pieces fall apart. And as much as I, you don't like the 180 that Zeke does, it's very believable. I, I know people like that. They will do anything to rise up, rise up the ranks. There's even there's the, the scene on the porch after. So let's talk about what the union's plans for for dealing with these three are after the blackmail. They say that Smokey's the one that's gonna keep fucking with them even if he's like even if we give him everything that they want he's not gonna stop it's never enough for him he's a two-time loser he's got nothing else to lose he's gonna keep going at it so they they they, that's yeah that's how they phrase it that's that's how they phrase it. exactly yeah so they kill him um it's it's played off as an industrial accident but basically it's and, and again going back to the mafia it's 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 set up like a mafia hit like he's told by one he's told by a foreman that they need help in one of the painting bays where they just spray paint all over the car to color it then you see one of the um the forklift loaders go park the forklift in front of the the door so he can't get out it's it's an arranged hit it's like a mop it's a, like a mafia hit it's all set up yeah. and yeah. They frame it as an industrial accident, so they're like, all right, we got Smokey. It's interesting going back to the the surveillance, I guess. And even before we see the files, when when Zeke, Richard Pryor's character, actually goes to complain about his locker, the guy mentions, he goes like, Zeke, you remind me of me when I, you know, when I was your age. And we've been watching you for a long time. So these kinds of, like, it's, it's... the way that it's scripted, the way that it's filmed, the way that it's edited, like it's all it's all purposeful dominoes set up to eventually knock one player knock down, down, keep one player in check. They know that Jerry is the one that um he'll fold. He's a family man. He loves his wife. We we assert a little bit of pressure, a little intimidation. He's gonna fall into line. Zeke, he we give him a little taste of power. He's going to eat it right up. It's going to be a soft, cushy job. It's kind of like what they say, um, like a, a puppet regime. Like there's nothing. It's yeah. it's the he's given just enough power that he he thinks that he's a bigger cog in the machine, although he's not. It's just to appease him. It's just to keep yeah. him. It's to keep him in his lane. Yeah, and his life will be much more comfortable now, definitely. That's a key ingredient. He f- he feels that okay, I'm a black man. Yeah, yeah. He's got he's got just, a, yeah. and they I even say, it's funny because we get this scene. They're like, well, how much power can you take? And he says right to it, as much as you can give me. And and I think that that's just like music to their ears that they know that we can give him a crumb. He thinks it's a feast. We know that it's an appetizer 
for a main course that oh, we're right. we're never oh, we're right. we're never gonna give him. Forgot about that. Yep. Now, so it's all about division. It's all about people staying in their lane. It's handled so well. You kind of get the feeling that. And I don't, again, I don't want to speculate on the psychology of characters. It's Smokey, like, has a, like, such a big heart. He, like, goes out of his way, it, you know, through some plot convenience. He discovers that some thugs are on their way to, to Jerry's house. And, you know, he he shows up at the house and, you know, beats up the thugs. And when he dies, Jerry takes it the hardest. Like, we don't know their their history, their past. But through conversations at the bar mostly, it seemed that Zeke and Smokey were friendlier, I would think. But Jerry's the one that takes Smokey's death really <clears throat> to heart more. He's the one that's really upset about it. <clears throat> but it's like, there, there's, there's, hint, there's hints of dialogue that, you know... Zeke knows about Smokey's past. I think one of the first scenes in the bar, you know, Smokey's talking up some women and, um, you know, Zeke invites him over to talk about like some of the, you know, the bad shit that he got to back in the day. But I mean, there is a scene Zeke's upset, but and he confronts them and he said, you know, you promised me that they were going to be okay. And they said, well, it was an accident. It was a, we've, had, we've been having meetings all day about this. It was an industrial accident. So-and-so's going to lose their job. But that means that there's an opportunity for you. And, like, as soon as that opportunity is mentioned, okay, my friend is dead. But you know what? This this is my chance. This is what I've been – this is what I want. It's, it's actually – it's actually – it becomes a blood sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't want to take – I don't, I don't want to take, take it there. But, I mean, when you think about it. Like Smokey dies, Zeke gets the promotion. <laughs> it's just like what, what, yeah. And and then there's the scene on the porch with Jerry and Zeke talking, and Jerry's uh, Zeke says, "Well, this means I can give you an." He talks. They're talking about families, and why is my family more important than your family? That kind of, there's there's that kind of talk. There's racial talk that there's more. You're going to have more opportunities because you're white. This is my one opportunity. I have to take it. But I can help you and I can get you a cushy job like I got a cushy job. And Harvey Keitel's reaction is just like he mimics the uh, the knife in the back. Mimics the knife in the back? What do you mean? He like, what? You know how the, the saying, you know, you put a knife in my back? Yeah. Maybe you couldn't see it on the YouTube, but the scene's cut out. Like, he, he makes, he, like, smirks at him, and he goes, nah. And, like, he, he mimics, like, pulling a knife out of his back. Like, there's not literally a knife. Wow. I don't think I did. I think that might have been chopped off the screen. Oh. Wow. Oh, man, that's pretty heavy. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, okay, so... So let's talk about Jerry for a minute, How Harvey Keitel's character. So Jerry... Jerry... Jerry pretty much holds on to his um, eth ethical, his ethical, ethical identity. Let's put it that way. Um, pretty much till the end, and he does break out of the the plan from the higher ups. The you know, if the higher ups are saying that he will, he's got a family and he will cave quickly because he doesn't want to create too many big waves. I mean. Jerry has pretty much broken out of that by the end because he's got a court case going on. 
it looks like with the factory and with with probably the union am i right yes there's the scene he sent he, he sends his uh he sends his wife and kids out out to visit some relatives he spends a couple paranoid nights at home you know he's he's he we see like the ashtray full up with cigarettes he's sitting there chain smoking with a gun he you know every time a car drives by the house he's very paranoid and it t- turns out that he wor- was right to be paranoid because it seems like he's gonna and he talks about it with the the ag he's like maybe i'll just go to canada it can't be any worse there and there's that scene where like he, it looks like he's gonna drive and try to escape to canada and this car pulls up alongside him the window rolls down and follow yeah so that person, okay, so when that happens, because a car is following him, turns into more of a chase, and when the car pulls up beside him, you see in the background, and it's blurry, but it's it's a figure with a gun. Yeah, he's got a shotgun, yeah. Right. Yeah. Aiming, aiming a gun at him before he pedals, he pedals the gas and out, out drives them. Yep, and then, um, yeah, there's a little bit of a chase. Yeah. Yeah. He, he... Cr- <laughs> And then, yeah, he sees the sign for Canada. He sees the exit for Canada. Yeah. The, and, uh, I guess he doesn't take it. But, yeah, you can tell that the wheels are turning. Oh, no. He was going to take it. They, he ends up crashing before he can make it. To, to You see it. I feel – I'm sorry that you had to watch, like, a YouTube cut. <laughs> You're probably missing some of the visual stuff. But there's a big sign. Like, he's headed for – it's called the Tunnel, Tunnel to Canada. And he's almost there. Car's chasing him. He crashes, the other car crashes, a, a cop had started following them, and the cop pulls him out of the car, and he says, I want to, con- I, I need to confess, like, I, I need to confess, this is what's going on, and he tells him the name of the government agent to, to contact, and then the movie wraps up that, um, yeah, uh, he goes to the plant, I guess, to just re- retrieve some personal belongings from his locker, and then we get the... and, he's, and he's flanked with a couple of lawyers. Uh, well, the uh, he's flanked with um, I I don't even think they're lawyer. I think they're FBI agents. One of them is definitely yeah. some sort of law. Um, yeah, for protection reasons. And um, yep, you get one of them calling. I I guess he has the show- showdown with Richard Pryor. But yeah, so he's the the final scene of the movie is the. The um and and through the dialogue we find out yet yeah, you don't say actually one of the agents says to Jerry says don't say anything to him don't say anything you'll see him in court you know that's where we deal with it it starts off with scab traitor and then it quickly escalates to some some heavy end bombs and cracker and honky and then we get. We get the the final freeze frame scene of um, Jerry like swinging with a punch, and it looks like Richard Pryor's Zeke's character. He's got some sort of pipe in his hand, and it freeze frames right before right before they clash. Whoa! And Whoa. it stops, and then we. Oh, so they're about to, they're about to fuck each other up bad. Oh yeah, and. Ugh. So the scene in the movie, that was envisioned the entire time as the climax. Uh, Paul Schrader's idea was to have this final scene that we see that it their relationship and their friendship has dissolved to the point where they're coming to 
to physical violence. They're about ready to sh- to stop each other. Bo- the FBI agents are holding back Jerry. The other the union workers are holding back Zeke. And we get a freeze frame. We get and then we hear the Smokey um, voice. I think it's Smokey. I'm pretty sure it's Smokey talking from the grave about division and staying in your lane and know your place. That's incredible. I mean, that's just genius. I think that's. I think that's. <laughs> I think that's brilliant. It is brilliant. Uh, my only yeah. my only critique is that we you see this climax and I get it's so powerful it's so moving it's so earned in the actual movie but for some reason it's in the trailer for this movie so if you watch the trailer for this movie this the trail the tra- the trailer for this movie ends the way that this movie ends and <laughs> Thankfully, I'm one of those people that I've I've come to have a very love-hate relationship with trailers. A well-made trailer is a great advertisement for your movie. It's a great way to get people invested. This trailer, and I put this up on our, our website. If you check out this movie, do not watch the trailer first because the emotional impact of that scene is greatly diminished because it's thrown in at the end of a, a minute and a half of usual trailer stuff wow wow i mean that that is a very powerful tableau to freeze on at at the end of the film it really is uh now now that we're talking now that we're kind of like going off um about the the movie uh, now that now that we're talking about the movie in the way that it's been publicized why don't you why don't you riff on that for a little bit okay i know you've got a lot to say including the poster which is very uh, weird and misleading. Right. Yeah. So even before we get to the, uh, well, I don't know if we should talk about the advertising first or just like the amount of tension that it was uh, like on display behind the cameras. Like, unfortunately, the since this was the seventies, they weren't thinking about DVD and Blu-ray extras. There would have been behind-the-scenes footage. There would have been a making-of documentary. I would have loved to see some of the behind-the-scenes footage of this movie because this movie, while there is no violence between any of the main characters on screen within each other, there was plenty of violence behind the scenes. <laughs> Richard Pryor pulled a gun at one point on the director, uh, claiming that he couldn't do any more than three takes. Harvey Keitel got so upset with Richard Pryor's constant improv that he flung a full ashtray at the camera, ruining the take, and Pryor and his bodyguard proceeded to pin Harvey Keitel to the floor and and start beating on him. Yafet Kodo, yeah, keep going. Yafet Kodo got was very upset with Pryor's improv because of um he kept losing his place as a character. And I've, I've heard this a lot about actors getting along with other actors when it comes to improv. If you have a character, if you have an actor that's skilled in improv going up against an actor that's not, that's, that's kind of trained just to do their lines, to know when they're supposed to be talking and not like riff on stuff. There's a lot of examples of that. One of the most famous ones that I could think of in most recent history, there was a movie from the clerk's and Mallrats director Kevin Smith, he did a movie with Bruce Willis and Tracy Morgan. Tracy Morgan had a history on Saturday Night Live as a stand-up comedian, was very gifted in improv. 
and Bruce Willis, in the later part of his career, kind of just phones it in. So, like, there was a lot of tension behind the scenes on that movie because one one act one actor was. I'm sorry. No, no, I can I can say a couple things about this. Okay. Uh, first, first of all, the irony of of this is that there are there are <laughs> there are unions for the screenwriters, uh, and there are people on set. Probably not so much in the '70s, but definitely now. I've seen it. I've been there. Um, who will make sure that the actors get every single word right? I mean, there are unions for that. You know, in movies now. Now, when you've got a star, when you've got a big time star who's known for improv, um, then yeah, then 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 it's gonna then it's gonna be a different story. And I'm not quite sure exactly how that's handled. However, I did do some closed set background work for uh, the Dictator with Sasha Baron Cohen. Okay. That's the, is that the name of the movie? Yes, it is. Well. It- okay. So. That that's the more, one of the. It was, it was under it was under a different title when it was being filmed, but I think it was released as the Dictator. Okay. So there was a close set uh, uh, scene in a hotel lobby with Sasha Baron Cohen and John C. Riley and Ben Kingsley, and so they would do the scene as scripted, and they would do as many takes as they felt you know were needed for that, and then. They would do the scene again and they would improv. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting that they had both. They had the scripted and then they had the improv scene. I uh, um, I think they could use, you know, splice together if they wanted to. That's very, very common I've seen in, in more recent history with with comedies. Uh, because they're not shooting they're not shooting on film, so they don't have to worry about the amount of film that they're they're using. So if they're using uh, digital cameras and they're just recording onto um, some memory. A lot of modern comedies, what they'll do is they'll do the screen, uh, they'll do the scene as scripted, then they'll just do the scene improv. And I, I, there's a lot of, it's very common. I think it really started with, oh God, what's the na- guy's name? Judd Apatow is kind of famous for doing that. A lot of his movies, like, a lot of the bonus features on the DVDs and Blu-rays, it's called Lino-Rama, where an actor will say the same line, but it'll be a, like a goofy take on it. And, you know, it's just a joke. And and I get the feeling that behind the scenes, like everyone comes from a comedy background. So they'll, they'll say, well, instead of saying it smells like Bigfoot's dick, say it smells like a diaper full of Indian food, that kind of stuff. And... But, so but paul schrader this was his um you know he doesn't come from a a comedy background like he none of his his movies do have some some humor within it but i i think i get the feeling from conversations with him that he's he's kind of like the script is the bible kind of director he seems to have loosened up in more recent years, but I think I get the... He, he was really... St- I mean, obviously, he was really stressed out during the filming of Blue Collar, and he must have been stressed out by prior doing uh, a lot of improv if he felt, you know, he's a screenwriter and he's doing his first direct... his directorial debut uh, with his own script. That Yeah, I can see how that would have been difficult for him. 
He had a meltdown, didn't he? He did. Yes. And this is not the first time that he had a meltdown. I can only imagine that it was creative and personal tension. I believe that his marriage was kind of on the rocks at this period. I'm not sure. He's been married a couple times. There's also substance abuse issues on both his end and on Richard Pryor's end. Uh, Richard Pryor, when they started filming, had been off cocaine at some point during the filming, went back on cocaine. In that party scene, they used Sweet and Low. Well, the crew thought it was Sweet and Low. Apparently, some of the cocaine on display in this movie was actual cocaine, which okay. which led to, to they said, what, like I said, he literally pulled a gun. Richard, why would you have, a, and, and this couldn't be more timely with the whole fucking Alec Baldwin actually Baldwin. killing someone with a... a what they thought was a prop gun. Richard Pryor had a real gun on set. Again, this was a different time. This is the late 70s. Like, I don't know. I wasn't alive at the time, so I can't really... I mean, Richard Pryor was also at the height of his stardom. I, we're talking 1978, and I think I mentioned that 1978 is the same year as The Wiz and Car Wash, and he basically has only cameos in those two movies. But, I mean, already that's three movies that are high-profile. Right. For him in one year. Um, you know, big star. He's got bodyguards on set. Uh, and he's, you know, he's he's a boy from the hood, so he's going to have a gun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but, I mean, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be laughing. Maybe there's nothing to laugh about. But I would just have loved to have been a fly on the wall. You just said you, you did. You wish you had been, too. When he did pull out that gun and say, to the direct say to Schrader no more than three takes <laughs> right <laughs> I wonder you know and I wonder how Schrader was was operating as a director maybe as a first time director maybe he was putting his actors through a little bit more than uh, they would have been put through otherwise with you know a more seasoned director so so there, you know it could have been a justified outbreak even though it's, it's one of those instances where the outbreak greatly overshadows the cause of it. So I, I guess we could just say thankfully that nobody was, you know, seriously hurt behind the scenes. Um, but speaking of Paul Schrader, again, right, he's not a seasoned director. I, I think he kind of... I guess that he he was on set quite a bit with, uh, with Taxi Driver. But... Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro had a, like an established rapport already when doing the taxi when doing Taxi Driver. I believe they'd done at least a two or two movies before that together. So they had like an under an an unspoken relationship with each other, I think right. directing wise. And so maybe he thought but it would be easier but like you said, if you have a coked up, not egotistical because he's a very gifted comedian and actor, but if you have Richard Pryor, who's, you know, at the, you know, one of the best well-known comedians, actors at this time, I, I, I would think that he, he's got a bit of an ego with him going along with it. But that being, well, yeah, I mean, and it's part, it's part and parcel of, of the substance too. I mean, sure. Cocaine is going to give you an ego. But, if you do it on a regular basis. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, I would. I don't know personally. But I've seen people on cocaine. I know people that have issues with cocaine. Um, but Paul Schrader also. I, I just want to mention this. Kind of brought this upon himself. He, there's a quote from him that said when it came to Harvey Keitel, Richard Pryor, and Yafet Kodo, that he hired three bulls to come into a china shop, but he had promised each of these bulls that they would be the lead in this movie. Now, what the heck? is that what he had to do to get them on board? I and then and then. And then they're on board and they realize what the real deal is, that it's more of an ensemble pick. It's so, I mean, there's going to be resentment. Absolutely. You're st- yeah. And that's what I said. Uh, that's why I wanted to mention it. Yeah, you're, yeah, right. you're setting your, you're yeah. setting yourself up for a disaster there. If you, and, and like I said, I think that a Scorsese, a more seasoned director, someone with a couple movies under his belt would know better than to say that to any actor, regardless of their stature at the time, you don't, promise three people the lead of the movie. That's like promising three people. Like, that's like promising Alfred the butler that you're going to be the lead alongside Batman. And that's just... This is an ensemble... This is such an ensemble movie. There's not... This is not Taxi Driver, where we spend every single frame of the movie with Robert De Niro, with Travis Bickle. This is an ensemble movie. We have separate... Each character kind of has like their, their moment to shine. We have Jerry having this breakdown when he sees what his daughter has done to her, done to her mouth trying to make a braces. We see Zeke, portrayed by Richard Pryor, trying to fool an IRS agent that he has six kids instead of three. We see Smokey have this like where he's like the, the the cool guy that everyone knows in the neighborhood and he talks down um talks down one of his buddies that's trying to sell him like cheap watches and he talks them down and, and he's the one that he's the fun loving guy and then he gets his moment to shine when he saves Jerry's family this is an ensemble piece this is not one movie so if you're telling three actors that are all hungry like relatively new in the business so to speak that these aren't the most established actors at the time, they would all go on to to have great success. But if you're promising all three of them, it's almost like the actual plot of the movie with these three characters combusting behind the scenes when their characters are combusting on screen when the union manipulates yeah. them through through some through some form through some form of manipulation. You know, realizing that they're being manipulated, it's happening in the plot of the movie, and it's happening behind the scenes as well. If that's if that's truly the case, if that's one of the main sources of the uh, of the tension behind the scenes, yeah. You know, and then let's let's talk about the movie poster for a minute because it it makes no sense. No, it makes no sense to no. have Richard Pryor's face on it twice when there are three of them starring in the movie in an ensemble piece. I saw another poster that I think is more recent that I really liked of the th- silhouettes of the three of them pushing up a car, like a car lift in a mechanic's garage. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. I liked that. You know, that would have been a good one. But what what the hell was up with this? <sighs> so showing two faces in a movie poster. You think it's you think that he's playing twins or something if you look at that poster. So let's talk about this poster. The poster is bright red. 
the the only so it's mostly red. There's not any like background to it. It's just a red poster. Two pictures of Richard Pryor, like you said. One where he's like he's got a silly like Richard Pryor smile on his face, like he's up to like hijinks and shenanigans. And then you got like a more serious grim look. The only distinguishing thing, like if you look at it closely, because throughout the course of the movie, for for safety reasons, working on the assembly line, he sometimes puts on glasses to shield his eyes from sparks and whatnot. But like you said, it's almost like they're playing twins. It's just like you got an ensemble movie. I hate to say the copy that I have, um, the cover is just Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor. Um, one of the other movie posters shows the three of them on screen. But the most prominent one, and it was the cover, I believe, of the VHS that, that came out back in the 70s. It's just Richard Pryor. And then there's a quote hyping up like how this movie captures the comedic brilliance of Richard Pryor and I do not want to diminish the 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 humor in this movie because more often than not the humor works the humor lands and that's because of Richard Pryor probably because of his riffing and improv one of my favorite lines from him is well you could flick my bick that he says to one of the union workers it it does have moments of humor if you saw this, if if I was going, if I was back at the rental store, strolling through Blockbuster, the local mom and pop, and I saw this movie, first of all, it would probably be set in the drama section. No, it would probably be set in the comedies when it should be in the drama section. But yeah. but then you yeah. see you see Richard Pryor. You have this quote about now. I think that I read a review somewhere. It's not from where they got this quote from, but a lot of times that the comedy in Richard Pryor movies didn't really match the kind of comedy that he did with his stand-up material. Stand-up material was very realistic, very gritty, very from-the-streets kind of comedy, and that's the kind of humor that is delivered in this movie, but it's not It's not a comedy. If you had... If you had and, and I don't... I don't like genre splitting. Yes, arguments can be made, but if I if you had to pick if you had to pick one genre, you only had to pick one. You couldn't say, "Well, it's a drama with dark humor." This is a drama. Plain and simple. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know what it's it's a, it's a social commentary drama as well. I need to I need to drop some names of some other flicks that that I think of with this movie. Please. Please. Uh, okay, cool. So it's been compared to On the Waterfront. I like a very bad cinemaphile. I have never seen On the Waterfront. I need to see On the Waterfront. It's been compared to that. I believe On the Waterfront deals with uh, unions. Yes. Yep. Reminds me of. Yeah, it also reminds me of a movie called Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is a, a, an excellent, excellent film that no one knows about. Uh, but that deals with uh, that deals with unions as well, and and the people actually the people rising up against the corruption of the unions. So those two movies. Also, there are a couple uh, movies from the seventies: Fun with Dick and Jane and Claudine with Diane Carroll, where the main characters are actually dealing with uh, the welfare department and the the corruption and the well you know the corruption. Of It's almost like the frustrations are the same 
it's and I found that very interesting that the the frustrations that you would have on welfare with that system could be similar to the frustrations that you have uh, with a union uh, when you're working a blue collar job. Uh, it's just it can be it what it what it boils down to is bureaucracy, red tape, and gridlock most of the time. Absolutely. And then if you scratch beneath the surface, if you actually try to, you know, and then you're right. And then if you scratch beneath the surface and you try to actually get somewhere with, you know, uh, with these systems, it can backfire on you real bad. It, and it comes back to that, you know. When I say get somewhere, go ahead. No, it's it, it's it's interesting because these characters are just scraping by. They they don't have these like. They don't like their motives, their aspirations, their dreams are not ridiculous. They're not anything that anyone wouldn't wouldn't want. You want to be able as a father to provide your your daughter with braces if she needs braces. You want to be able to um Zeke comments about he doesn't care what's on the television. He's he saved up 3 years to buy this television, so we're going to watch it every single night regardless. He goes even when the channels go off, I'm going to watch the fuzz on the screen. Like, they have very, like, they have very, like, they just want, they just want to be able to provide. They want some lever, level of comfort. Harvey Keitel doesn't want to be able to, he doesn't want to work two jobs. There's a, there's one of the lines in the movies, like, I promised I wouldn't work on my vacation. And Richard Pryor gets busted by the IRS that he, he helped the, helped a friend pay in a house and he got paid he got paid under the table for you know or actually if the IRS found out about it he didn't get paid under the table regardless he's just trying to he's just trying to scrape by you know well and, and he's given a figure he's given a figure of how much he owes because of some some bullshit reason I think it's 25 and it's a ridiculous figure $2,500 I think yeah, which I mean, you know, doesn't seem ridiculous now, but back then, and especially if you just didn't, if you don't have that, it's a ridiculous figure, and and you know, and you see it, you see it in Richard Pryor. I I love Richard Pryor's performance in this movie. It's brilliant. You know, I mean, you know, we're talking. It, it really is. So we're talking about what he did, you know, his off-screen antics, um, you know, and what was going on with him personally and professionally at this time in his career. Uh, but I mean, when you just sit down and watch the movie, he's—it's all him. Like I mean, when it's all, I'm not saying the movie's all him. I'm saying his acting is all him. It's he's transparent. Like you see right through. Um, you see, he's transparent with everything he's feeling. He, you, character. you stop seeing Richard. I, I think during that moment when he's given that ridiculous figure by the IRS, you're just—he's just like. You see, he's so at a loss. How in the world am I going to get that money? How in the world am I going to get that money? Right. You know, and he, yeah, and he asks, you know, and of course the IRS guy is just like, well, that's not my problem. But but you, you really feel it with him. And, and I love the other two leads as well. I think their acting was excellent. But somehow, maybe it's just because I felt like I was watching Richard Pryor maybe he wasn't even acting he was just being himself but it was just so raw and so real I I was just gonna say that I, and, and I don't I, I like Harvey Keitel I think he's a good actor 
I still saw Harvey Keitel as as Jerry. Okay. Yeah, um, Yafet yeah. Koto. Uh, the stuff I've se- I haven't seen that much. In- I I know he's one of my favorites from the original Alien. I, I can't speak too much about other movies that I've oh, seen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I maybe it's because I I don't know if this was a a part of the filmmaker. I always think Richard Pryor, and I see the mustache. But he this is one of the few movie roles where he doesn't have a mustache. Like it's it's it makes it and it makes them look like thirty years younger. Not only that, but like after a while, I saw I didn't see Richard Pryor anymore. I saw Zeke. That's how good his performance is. Like he's just like he became and I I. I don't know if it was the cocaine. I don't know if it was the tension. Like he just, it's almost like the, it's, it's like good acting is so flawless in a way that you don't see that this person is. I mean, I had an, I had an, I had an, are you, are you talking? No, you Okay. So I had, I had an acting teacher once that was just like, you don't want people saying what a great actor you are. Oh, he's such a good actor. You don't, you don't want that. You want them to watch your performance and and then not know where their car keys are or where they park their car, like to be that out of it from your performance. You so it's just, you, you know the difference. You know what I'm trying to say. I I do. Yes. Um. I I don't have nearly as much acting experience as you. I did all children's theater as a as a child, and I did some acting in in high school. But I just as a movie fan, like I'm able to recognize. And not to, I'll just you name. When, when someone is so in character and so natural that you forget about the fact that they're acting or that they're an actor. Right, exactly. Um, That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And Pryor does go there with this. And it's a, it's a performance that I, I just wish that he did. My familiarity with, with Richard Pryor is mainly through his stand-up, but also he did a bunch of movies with um, Gene Wilder. It was, you know, those are the kind of Richard Pryor movies that I was familiar with. And, uh, of course, I saw Superman 3, which uh, I, Super, Superman and Richard Pryor don't need to be in a movie together. That's all I'll say about Superman 3. <laughs> but I wish, and I'm glad that this movie exists because if anyone ever says Richard Pryor can't handle it, couldn't, or yeah, couldn't, uh, unfortunately he's passed, couldn't handle a dramatic material, I would just, I, I will die on this hill that Blue Collar is proof positive that, that this man delivered a dramatic role like... Yes. And even watching it on, um, again, unfortunately you have to watch it on YouTube, but just, it's just... It, it it should be shown in like uh, I don't teach dramatic classes, but this is this is the kind of performance that you don't see, you just don't see anymore. And not to say that this is a product of the time. This movie is just as relevant in the seventies as it is now, with unions and blue collar and being cogs in the machine and corruption and corruption and people getting fed up with not making enough money, and so they just refuse to. They're, they're like, you know what? I'm going to go on, I'm going to get more money from unemployment or I'm going to get more money on welfare than I am working right. your middle, your minimum wage job. Right. This- even, even when it comes to insurance, even when it comes to insurance, you're, you're honestly, technically better off being on welfare, being on Medicaid, you know, or, or being on disability, being on Medicare, than you are paying into a health plan. I mean, it's your, because those health plans will just, will, they'll screw you. So, so it's just, you know, it's, one thing after another. Let me 
let me also while I I mentioned a few, few movies in comparison before. Let me let, let me throw in a couple more real quick. Please go ahead. There's, um, yeah, there's How to Succeed: The High Cost of Living, which is a comedy starring three women um, that came out around the same time, and the three women uh, they they do a little robbery of their own and they succeed. They get away with it. But the but the whole you know the whole the whole uh, setup is that it's the late seventies and it's really hard to make ends meet and um how do you how do you beat this so i thought that was that was uh that that sprung to mind with in comparison with blue collar um there's another one i wanted to mention what is it oh maybe i'll think of it yeah well let's start um wrapping it up we're we're actually nearing if for for whatever reason you haven't watched this movie and you're listening to the show, I always encourage people to do what my parents do. I I give them a heads up on the movies that I'm covering on the show. Watch the movie first because it it is a movie. Regardless of your walk of of life, it's relatable. Uh, the struggles are real. The problems are real. The dialogue is real. You get real people in real situations with real consequences. And that's not the kind of movie, again, that gets made very often. This movie came out in 1978. It's, like I said, I don't, I can't re- reiterate this enough. It's just as relevant now, if not more relevant, pardon the cliche. And it's just a brilliant movie that the critics loved, the audience for... I think was between the trailer and we talked about the advertising, we talked about the VHS cover. It's kind of misleading. Again, I've mentioned this on the show a couple of times. This is not the kind of movie that if I was in the market, if I was hired to market this movie, I wouldn't. This is not a job that I would want to. It's easy to market a comedy. You show in some funny scenes. It's easy to market a a drama. And I guess the the marketing department says, well, we got to. We got Richard Pryor in this movie, so we got to play up Richard Pryor. But again, the advertising is misleading. This movie has a message. This movie will take you. You feel like you've worked a day on the assembly line afterwards. This movie will kind of wear you out. But in a good way. Again, this movie came out in 19... Oh, a downer. I, I, I think the movie's a downer. But then again... <laughs> but I... I I like it. I like a downer. I think that too often. I don't know. For me personally, a lot of people say, "Well, I I want to go to a, you go to a, you watch a movie to escape for a while. If you want a happy ending, this is well. Uh, well, we that's a whole that's a topic that we could discuss to death. I think that if you you're you're thinking you're gonna get a, a, a funny Richard Pryor comedy, this is not the movie. Go watch Dirt Crazy or something. <laughs> Go watch even better. Watch some of his stand-up comedy. You'll or the toy. Yeah, or the to- exactly. Watch watch one of those. Left. Watch stand up. Brewster's Millions. That's an, another good. Because his stand up, the brilliance of his stand up was never really captured in a movie. I don't think was it. No, he he did stand up specials, but I mean, as far as capturing his comedic, like, I think that this movie is the best example of his stand-up being utilized like his style of stand-up comedy being utilized in a movie just because i i don't know much about his personal life but i get the feeling that he came up in a very blue-collar family if i'm not mistaken it's a very probably gritty street level kind of comedy like um 
Zeke's the the the, uh, the street smart. Well, street smart to a certain degree. But again, we've we've talked this movie for quite a quite a long time now. It's a great movie. Can't recommend it enough. Paul Schrader, well known for his collaborations with Scorsese. This was um one of the uh, another collaboration that he did with his brother Leonard. And Schrader finally got his first Academy Award nomination for an original screenplay just a couple of years ago. But if you look back at his catalog, he's got some real interesting movies in there. And uh, this, for a directorial debut, I'm glad that he did contemplate never directing again after this. <laughs> Which, yeah. I mean, just speaks to the how much tension there was behind the scenes. Let's wrap this up. This movie was shot in Detroit. It feels like a real Detroit movie. You feel like you, yep. the city feels lived in. Uh, the neighborhoods are real. The car plant that they used was an actual uh, checker cab company plant. And um, yeah, it was filmed in the home state of Michigan of Paul Schrader. A great, great movie. It gave us a... a and I love the opening song, Hard Working Man, Captain Beefheart and Jack Nitsky. Um, it's an interpretation of an old Muddy Waters blues song. Just a great addition to the movie. A little over two hours, but it flies by. And it just a little interesting fun tidbit that this movie set the, the record at the time, which was later broken by Scarface, I believe, a couple years later, with the word fuck being used 158 times. So that was a, a record at the time. I noticed that, and it didn't bother me. And I was fine with it. It actually made it, it made it, once again, I'm, I'm using the word real over and over and over again. But once again, it really authentic, 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 more authentic to be authentic. Uh, oh, now I can't say it. I <laughs> authenticized. <laughs> so yeah, because it it, it feels like th this is the way that these guys would talk. It doesn't feel forced. Sometimes, like That's you, right. you feel like it's forced in certain movies that you you kind of have to. You, you need to drop an f bomb here and there. And the um, yeah. the N word is sprinkled throughout this movie too, but that's just like it. It feels like that. This is like realistic. This is the way that these guys would actually talk. It doesn't feel forced. Yes. It's almost like you could like if you show this as a documentary on unions to people that were unfamiliar with Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor. They uh, why not? This is like <laughs> this is the way these people talk. And using the real set of a real cab company, they got lucky because no no major automobile manufacturer wanted anything to do with this movie. Obviously, because it's it's yeah. it it's a condemnation of management and unions. Yeah, but it also it also gives you some of the positives of the unions. But again, we've talked about. If you've 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 listened to us ramble enough about this movie, if for every reason you haven't watched it, go watch it, go rewatch it. Just spread the word that this is this is one that y you need to see. Final thoughts, Andrew. So, yeah, and the the last movie I'm going to bring up in comparison is called Save the Tiger with Jack Lemmon. It came out a few years before. Um, got a lot of critical praise and actually an Academy Award nomination for Jack Lemmon, but it didn't go very far in the box office. But it also deals with uh, with corruption. Uh, Jack Lemmon plays um, a man who works in the garment industry in Los Angeles and 
they are having trouble making ends meet, and he makes a deal to um, to create arson for to collect the insurance. And it's it's just it's grim and dark, and it gets more and more underhanded. As so, you see how people who are operating within a corrupt system um, have to often resort to corrupt means to to continue operating in that corrupt system. There you have it. Beautiful. So, thank you once again for joining us on this uh, excursion into another cult classic. Uh, on the cult film companion this is the second time mr Keitel has showed up on our show and this will be the first time paul schrader shows up on the show but uh, he's got a couple some cult movies in there and um i i think cat people is definitely one that's worth talking about just because it's it's a very bizarre movie but that's an episode for another day thank you all for joining us on the assembly line of blue collar for andrew my name is chris thank you for checking out the cult film companion podcast and we'll talk again to you real soon